Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 140, The Pew Study, five years later. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. Five years ago this month, the Pew Research Center released a document called A Portrait of Jewish Americans, summarizing its major study of Jews in the United States. We thought it would be interesting to look back at that study five years after its publication and to have a series of episodes loosely built around how has the Jewish community responded to that study in the five years since it was released. We thought we would start this series by talking to one of the leading people in the Jewish world who does these kinds of studies so that we could really understand in a deep way what the study found, what the study didn't find. And in the episodes that follow, we'll be talking to a wide variety of folks ranging from funders to organizational leaders to academics and others who, in one way or another, are talking about the future of the Jewish community, the future of Judaism in America, with the findings of the Pew study in the background. Today, our guest is Professor Leonard Sachs. He is the director of the Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies at Brandeis University, where he's also the director of the Steinhardt Social Research Institute. He is the Klutznik Professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies at Brandeis and has conducted a number of studies of local Jewish communities in the years since the Pew study was released. We're really excited to have this conversation with him so that we can really dive deep into the findings of the Pew study. Len Sachs, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Great to be with you. Well, it's the anniversary of the Pew study, which came out uh, just about five years ago. And while I think those of us who are working in the Jewish community uh, talk about little else, uh, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with it at all. So as a starting point, it would be great if you could give us a little bit of context, a little bit of sense of what was the study and why is it important? The Jewish community used to do studies every 10 years, national Jewish population studies uh, to estimate the population, to figure out who uh, and what kind of Jews uh, live in America. And after problems with the 2000-2001 study, um, the federation system got out of that business. And it wasn't until 2013, Pew, with its own money and uh, private philanthropy, uh, did a national study both to estimate the size of the Jewish population and uh, understand their characteristics. So it was really important. And it was important because we didn't have information about uh, the size of the population. The predictions had been that uh, American Jewry was disappearing, was vanishing. Um, We had lots of conjecture about whether uh, assimilation had uh, damaged and undermined the fabric of, uh, of Jewish life uh, in America. Uh, so in part because there hadn't been a national study, it was really important. And what were some of its major findings that, that you think were most significant? One was the question of size. 
that American Jewish population uh, included close to 7 million individuals. Uh, and that was really important because the 2000-2001 study said it was just over uh, 5 million and actually there had been a decline in the Jewish population. The second thing it said is that uh, the American Jewish population is diverse. It includes people uh, for whom Judaism as a religion is central, but it also includes people who are proud of being Jewish, uh, who are cultural Jews, secular Jews. Uh, the term of art in the Pew study for them was Jews of no religion, JNRs. So that was the second. And in some ways, the third wasn't a specific finding, but there was so much interesting information in the study that what the study did is it provoked debate and discussion about the relationship of American Jews to Israel, about the number of people receiving Jewish education, about the intermarriage rate, etc. And so there were dozens of uh, specific findings which provided the framework for uh, lots of debate and discussion. And You've conducted, I, I think, a number of more local population surveys in the last five years. And I'm wondering, have those surveys been roughly consistent with the findings of Pew? Or do you find different things when you do some of these studies in, in more local communities? Let me just back up for a second and say that prior to Pew um, being published, we had been doing, we called them syntheses of um, non-Jewish specific studies to estimate the Jewish population. I had been trying to develop the methodology uh, to answer the question that I think the 19, the 2000, 2001 National Jewish Population Survey um, wasn't answering. And from our synthesis, and the project is called the American Jewish Population Project, we have a website where you can actually look at maps of the Jewish population in America, we were generating estimates of close to 7 million Jews. And so when Pew came out, Pew actually validated what we had been reporting, but because we hadn't done a Jewish-specific survey and we didn't know much about the characteristics of people uh, of the Jewish population, um, their data was particularly important, but it was entirely consistent. I think we were within 100,000. They were within 100,000 of our estimate, which given the nature of sample surveys uh, is really quite extraordinary. Um, subsequent studies, not just our own community studies, have um, validated, I think, the basic findings of Pew. Number one, that there are lots more Jews than people thought there were, um, and that the population is diverse. There are lots of different ways to be Jewish. So I would say the, the studies, the subsequent studies, have been consistent with Pew. I think one of the things that happened is that Pew, uh, while its definitions of who's a Jew by religion, the primary category of, uh, of Jewish identification, there was lots of debate about it, discussion about it. It provided, if you will, a common language for people to talk about who are the Jews of America. And that was, in and of itself, uh, a very important, uh, very important development. I would say that the, the studies are consistent, and, and ours in particular. I really want to 
I really want to dig deeper into into the fact that you cited that one study can happen at one moment and find a number of Jews in the country that is in the vicinity of five million, five and a half million, and then another not so many years later can can come come along and reach a number that's much higher. And um, okay, two studies happened and they came to different conclusions. And we could say that one or the other study was just sort of wrong, and and maybe we maybe we should say that. Um, but but we could also look and say, are there different definitions of what a Jew is in these studies that are leading to those conclusions? So I'd love to back out for a second and say and ask, like, how was that two thousand study, or maybe in past studies generally, how were those studies defining Jews? Has that shifted with Pew? And in general, how do folks organizing these studies sort of figure out what the definition of a Jew is so that they can then count them? I don't think the issue with the 2000 study is a definitional issue. There were definitional issues and there were changes. I think what one needs to understand is that estimating the Jewish population is an exceedingly difficult task. And it's an exceedingly difficult task because we don't have census data. In the United States, the census doesn't collect information about religious identification, constitutional issues, but also issues marked by the Jewish community of of how they felt about being counted. Uh, Goes back a long way in um, in our tradition. So in order to do these studies, what you have to do is take a random sample of all America. And given the problem of reaching people by telephone, getting people to cooperate when you reach them by telephone, the adequacy of telephone lists and a whole bunch of other things. It is an exceedingly difficult task. One of the reasons a political poll, um, or actually two reasons why a political poll can do better and is an easier methodological problem is that we know because of the census, how many people in particular demographic groups and with particular demographic characteristics live in particular areas. And you can adjust the results that you get by the population, by the voting population, by the, um, by the population, the total population, including um, those who don't register um, to vote because we have the census. You can't do that with um, a, Jewish, a Jewish survey. The second thing is that in the case of political polls, um, you know, the first Tuesday of November, um, you know, we get the answer uh, as to whether we were correct or not. And you can, over time, correct your surveys to be better predictors of the election result. We can't do that in the Jewish world. So um, doing one of these surveys is very, very difficult. And in the case of the 2000-2001 study, there were a host of methodological problems and they lost data and there were issues of how many times they followed up with people and the response rate and a whole series of other issues that made it difficult to have much confidence in what we call the point estimates, the number of people in different groups. I want to distinguish that from the relationships. In other words, they got the numbers of people, 
we think, wrong. They underestimated. They didn't include people. But they didn't necessarily get the characteristics and the relationship and characteristics of the people who were Orthodox or the people who were Reform or whatever. In any event, um, by 2013, we knew a lot more about how to do surveys. And as well, Pew had extraordinary experience in assessing a whole range of behaviors and attitudes relevant to public policy and religion in, in America. And part of their, you know, doing a high quality study is to be very systematic and specific about how you define who's in and who's out and what analytic groups you're going to do. And to their credit, Pew engaged many of us in the Jewish social science community as advisors. Um, and uh, maybe none of us would have done exactly what they did, um, but um, it, it's a reasonable way uh, to understand who are the Jews by religion, the Jews not by religion. Uh, but anyway, they systematized it, and I don't think that the, the differences in studies are really definitional. Um, they're more fundamental methodological issues. So one of the questions that I have about the Pew study, and I've been thinking about it, you know, ever since it came out, was that I remember when it was being reported, there was this blockbuster finding that 22% or something like that of Jews in America were what they called Jews of no religion, and I think it was about 33% of millennials. And um, and then when I looked at how the study was laid out, like how did they get there, it was that the first question in the study was, what is your religion? And they gave a lot of options. And you could choose Jewish as one of them, and you could choose none, and you could choose another religion. And then if you if you chose Jewish, you know, it sort of branched one way. And if you chose no religion, it, it would ask you different questions. And sometimes you would be discovered that you had Jewish parentage or other Jewish affiliations or whatever. And then you would kind of depending on what it was, be classed as a Jew of no religion or a Jewish background or whatever. Um, and when I thought about that, and I thought about all my friends, you know, maybe even including myself, who for whom religion is a very minimal or almost no part or maybe no part of what it means to be Jewish. But if, you know, I sit down with somebody who's doing a study and they ask me, what is my religion? And Jewish is one of the options, I would check Jewish. You know, so it, it struck me that that 22 or 33 percent was probably a significant undercount. And I'm wondering if um, the methodology actually accounted for that or if you agree that probably it's actually a lot larger than those numbers. So I either want to take credit or blame uh, in part for the, uh, the question, what is your religion, if any? And the reason for that question is that because we don't have census data, if you want to figure out who's Jewish, the methodological approach that I developed was to synthesize surveys, health surveys, economic surveys, education surveys, political surveys, that is part of the demographics, ask people what their religion is. So that's the standard question asked, even by the government can ask it when it's not required. So they ask it on lots of surveys. So we actually have a database of over a thousand surveys where this question has been asked and where the government has spent hundreds of dollars to get high quality samples. So now we've done, I don't know, half a dozen or eight local community studies asking the question in the same way, and we have a direct comparison with, uh, with Pew. I, I think, um, I want to go back to your premise that this was a blockbuster finding. 
I don't think it was a blockbuster finding. I think it was an important finding. The unfortunate part about it is that it overshadowed the fact you compare the JNRs, the Jews of No Religion, in the 1990 survey, which was the prior considered most reliable uh, Jewish population study, National Jewish Population Study, um, to the Pew study, um, there was a 70% increase in the number of Jews of, of no religion, but there was a 20% increase in the number of Jews by religion. And one of the, one of the unfortunate pieces of the reporting about the study, the fact that you think that it is the blockbuster finding, is that the Jewish community was actually increasing in size. What's also interesting is that when you look inside the findings, well, it turns out that the JNRs, many of them are religiously engaged. I don't know, 20, 25% of them live in households that are synagogue members, and they do Jewish things. I think a piece of it is, yeah, there are lots of people who are not religious, but I also think that the way the survey was structured allowed them to be more honest about it than previous ways, and that mm -hmm. people feel, you know, it's like, okay, I mean, even people who participate in orthodox shuls um, will call themselves orthopraxis. They will call themselves Jews who don't believe or don't believe in the literal truth, but practice um, Judaism. And, and part of what I've been interested in is what does it mean to be a Jew in the modern era? How do we define it? Um, you know, who's not to say that this interview isn't a religious experience uh, for the three of us? So yes, it's an interesting and important finding, but I, I don't think that's the central and most important finding from the study. I want to visit a point that you mentioned briefly, but that I think is important, largely because I would like to channel uh, somebody who's not in this call, but who I cohabit with, my wife, Valerie, who is a biostatistician and spends her days looking at studies and thinking about study design and also thinking about institutional bias. Because in her world, she's looking at studies done to identify whether certain treatments for diseases are working or not. And there's this whole issue because a lot of pharmaceutical companies are sponsoring the studies. And so pharmaceutical companies want the studies to show that their drugs are working. And so surprise, surprise, when lots of these studies are put together, they are designed in ways that predispose them to find that the pharmaceutical companies' drugs work to, to treat whatever diseases or to cure whatever illness we're talking about. Um, and I bring that up not because we need to go and talk about biostatistics, but because it flashes me back to when I was in college, I was talking to my director of Hillel and and he had just received a note from like Hillel International or something asking, they, they ask every year how many Jews are on campus. He didn't do a study. <laughs> he, he just sort of ballparked based on the total size of campus and like a general sense of how many people are there. And sent a number back. And and I think every once in a blue moon, there was some slightly more sophisticated effort put together. But like, why is it that we've reached a place where Jewish institutions themselves are, are doing a lot of this counting and sort of figuring out these numbers and what are some of what are some of the specific dangers that can creep into play when it's when it's them and not outside actors 
First of all, thank you for the question, because this is an, an, a question that gets asked. Who do you trust? And based on who's funding a study, how much can you trust them? So in science and social science, we have a way to control that. You, one is transparent about how one collects the data. One is transparent about the questions, about the sample. One provides the data to people who want to examine it afterwards. And the difficulty with um, the LL process is that um, it's totally a system. It's not systematic and nobody knows how these numbers are created. Now, it's interesting that you gave me that example because one of the things that I've been doing for um, for a different set of purposes is to study um, uh, campuses, individual campuses. We're trying to understand the relationship between Jews on campus and other ethnic religious groups. But one of the byproducts of these studies um, is that we learn the number of Jews on campus. And using the Pew definitions, um, we've done a series, more than half a dozen studies now of campuses, Harvard and Penn, University of Michigan, our own institution, Brandeis, and more recently, the University of Florida. And in each case, we discover that the numbers that Hillel is reporting are much, much higher than the numbers of students, of Jewish students on these campuses. At Harvard, the Hillel guide was showing 25%. Turns out they're only 12%. At Penn, they were showing 25% of the undergraduates. It was 16, 17%. At the University of Florida, which supposedly had the largest number of Jewish students at any university um, in the country, um, 6,500, our study found only 23, 2,400 um, individuals. Um, so it's really important. Now, I think the difference in our work from the Hillel estimates is that you can go to our reports, our studies, our web pages, and you can see exactly how we went about doing this, how we drew a sample, um, how we um, assured ourselves that the sample wasn't biased. And if, um, whether it's your wife or it's uh, any other scientist wants to take a look and the, the language of art in, in the social sciences is alternative explanations, is to offer an alternative explanation. They're welcome to do that, and we're welcome also to, to share the data with people to, uh, to look at that. I think in, in terms of the funding of studies, one of the problems has been that because journalists, uh, because Jewish leaders, haven't understood the methodology and they haven't understood how these studies were done. Um, I sometimes call it judging a book by its cover. So you, you, you can't read it because it's in a language that you don't understand, but you can look at the cover and you can judge what's inside of the book. And so the funding mechanism becomes the issue. One more piece looking at the Jews by no religion angle, because I, I back out from that and I think, well, Judaism hasn't held religion as its primary category for very long. I mean, and to the extent it has, it's because it's a reaction to Christianity. I want to name that there's a danger because 
I read a Pew study recently that referred to the category of Americans that are most religious as Sunday stalwarts. Right. And and that's like obviously the term Sunday stalwarts is basing Christianity's Sunday attendance of worship as the norm. And it's saying that, well, if you're if you're somebody sort of like that in Judaism and you go to worship regularly, you're in the category of Sunday stalwarts. And I thought it reflected a sort of Christian hegemony that even veers into how we do Jewish studies especially when it's the same organization doing them. So Pew was the organization that did this Sunday stalwarts thing recently. And also they're the ones that are sort of looking at Jews by religion and Jews not by religion. So I guess all this is to say, like, as much as I stand by the positives of studies being done not by those who have institutional Jewish interests at play, what are some of the dangers that come into play when when it's folks that might understand Judaism in ways different from how Jews understand themselves? So let me just start with a, a broader point, which I wanted to make about the Pew study and, and its role. There's a, um, what well, was a sociologist, Carol Weiss, um, who coined uh, this uh, this phrase, uh, knowledge creep and decision accretion. And she used to study how research got used. And the bottom line was that no one study ever changed the world. That knowledge accumulates over time, it builds, and that high quality studies that are replicated um, eventually change people's minds about how to see things. So the fact that the Pew study, um, not just because it was Pew, but because it comes out of their, um, their religion uh, study group, um, has a kind of Christian frame to it, that, that is an issue. But they did ask the question in the survey, is being Jewish more about culture, ancestry, religion. And even the Jews by religion in their study, only a small minority of them said religion was what Judaism or being Jewish was primarily about. The majority said ancestry and culture. But again, the Jews of, uh, by religion, um, and only a small group of them said that that is primarily what Judaism is about. So I'm not worried about the fact that they had that bias. Okay, so we'll go and we'll do other studies. I do agree with you that the, the study that Pew did in, in 2018 uh, that came up with the Sunday, what was the expression? Sunday stalwarts. That the Sunday stalwarts, um, that that has a, a Christian orientation. Religion is in some ways a product of, or seeing Jews as, as, as a religion is a product of coming to America um, and uh, in some ways trying to be uh, American and worrying about um, our, um, um, our particularism um, uh, and so on. Uh, but, um, and Judaism is broader than that. And as I said earlier, in terms of discussing um, the importance or the significance of the Jews of no religion, um, I think many, if not most, American Jews, by the way, most Israeli Jews uh, uh, get that uh, as well. And that was demonstrated by the 
the study that Pew did subsequent to the U.S. Uh, study of, uh, of Jews of, uh, of Israel and Israeli Jews. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what the Pew study and also subsequent studies or other studies that you're aware of say um, about sort of I'm, I'm turning towards a little bit towards implications. And I, I want to take it in turns, both looking looking at the existing sort of set of do- dominant Jewish t- institutions that we've had in the 20th century, and then also how to take in some of these findings for some of the organizations or funders that are considering new ideas in in Jewish life. But first, I want to really start with the existing 20th century dominant institutions, in particular, the religious denominations, because in like you said, you know, about judging a book by its cover as a non a non social scientist, you know, I feel like I've done my best to try to really get into the details of the study and understand them. And I want to check a little bit of my understanding is correct, and then also kind of get some of the nuance from you. And I sort of had the feeling that all three of the major American Jewish denominations, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, were sort of misreading the Pew study. It felt like there was a sort of triumphalism that was coming from the Orthodox and the Reform, the Orthodox saying that their numbers are growing, the Reform saying their numbers aren't shrinking. And then there was a despair, although I, I don't think it was sort of fully taken, it doesn't sound like it's despairing enough by the conservative movement, which from what I can, from what I understood, basically went from uh, having something like 35% of, of American Jews in 1990 to 18% in, uh, in, in the Pew study in 2013. Um, it was interesting in Pew, it seems like sometimes it does distinguish between ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox, and sometimes it doesn't. And it's sort of confusing, because from what I can be- best see, modern Orthodox is is uh, not growing that much, or I don't know if it's not growing at all, or maybe it's even shrinking a little. Ultra-Orthodox is growing a lot, and that would appear to be because of a high birth rate and sort of a low rate of leaving, which has to do with all kinds of socio-demographic educational factors that might well change in, in the future. So that this sort of triumphalism that orthodoxy is the only denomination that's growing. I mean, if you're ultra-orthodox and you want to talk that way, I could argue about whether I think that's a good kind of Judaism, but you could kind of you could kind of accept that, yeah, it's actually growing. Whereas with modern Orthodox, it's it's much less clear that that's the case, at least to me. And I'm wondering if I'm reading this right or if you have other sort of corrections or glosses on, on what I'm saying about this. The most important issue is that the proportion of Orthodox is relatively small. Um, we're talking about only 10% or so of the total community. 90% are something or something else. And yes, you can show a higher rate of growth if you are a small number. Um, it doesn't take many to, um, to grow much larger. Um, but I think the, the more significant question, I think you are perceptive about your, your take on, on the study. Um, let me start with the conservative movement, which was the dominant synagogue affiliation of uh, American Jews. Um, What Pew indicated is that two-thirds of the people who were raised in the conservative movement no longer viewed themselves as conservative Jews. Those conservative Jews who married non-Jews tended to go to the reform movement because that's that's where they were welcomed. The reform movement, you're correct, has basically been stable because it got 
um, than influx from the conservative movement. If the conservative movement no longer has people to send over to the reform movement, um, there's a question about, uh, about its, um, its future. But actually, the largest denomination, the growingest denomination, and I know this uh, from our studies, which many of them focus on young people, um, is the denomination, and so it's sort of a joke, just Jewish, that people don't want to be identified any longer as a member of a particular denomination. And even within the denominations, first of all, there have been mergers between reform and conservative synagogue. There are reform synagogues that use conservative sidorim, prayer books. And I think young people don't want to be, in particular, put in uh, a box um, that some of the lines now between um, worship communities are lines between, is there a mechitza, is there not a mechitza, what's the role of women, um, and a whole bunch of other things which are, yes, connected to the rulings of rabbinic uh, groups uh, that associated with each of the denominations, but I think there are other other reasons why people are either affiliating with particular synagogue communities um, or, or not, and that there is this large and growing group of people who are just Jewish. And unlike previous eras where just Jewish was what you said, if you didn't go to shul, uh, if you didn't go to, to synagogue, um, if you weren't religious, if you weren't engaged in the community, Today, there are actually a fair number of people who are very committed, who simply don't fit into the usual boxes. So I'd love to carry forward this thread of, uh, so, okay, so we're, we're talking about how who people marry can relate to um, where they do, where they go to synagogue, or even if they don't go to synagogue, how they might think of themselves and what, where their families locate themselves, etc. And I, I wanna, I wanna use that opportunity to sort of hop into, hop into one of the key issues that people really duked it out over in the wake of the Pew study, which is intermarriage, and it's and it's been that issue for just about every Jewish population study I've ever looked at. Um, there's been the the aftermath of. We could call it debate. We could call it a battleground. We could call it whatever we call it. But it's it's incredible how there's this like Rorschach test thing in effect where people who think intermarriage is destroying the Jewish people can look at a survey and say, oh, this shows how intermarriage is destroying the Jewish people. And people who think intermarriage is really in need of embracing and like can look at the same survey and say, oh, this shows that intermarriage is absolutely helping the growth of the Jewish people. And, and without necessarily, I mean, if you'd like, you can, but without necessarily going into like your particular is intermarriage good, bad for the future, whatever, like what were some of the ways that people understood this and how might, how might we either complicate those presumptions or at the very least sort of underscore the fact that people are finding what, what they would like to find in these studies sometimes? Demography is not destiny. And I think some people take it as that. Some people assume, and this is um, a long-standing and not inaccurate view of history, of our near history, uh, that until the 1980s, 
uh, or children born before uh, uh, 1981, uh, if you had intermarried parents, one parent who was non-Jewish, it was as if you were giving up your Jewish passport. Um, it was the end of your involvement. And as it turns out, for the generation prior to the millennial generation, for Jews born before 1980, intermarriage um, led to the children being very unlikely to identify in any way with the Jewish people when they became adults. The generation born after 1980 during the period when welcoming was the key strategy, everything changed. And Jews who were children in particular, who were the product of intermarried uh, parents, no longer felt like um, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a place for them. Now, a very interesting thing came along just at the point that the first millennials were becoming adults, were turning age 18, a program came along called Birthright Israel took lead. And Birthright Israel invited these Jews of intermarried parents to participate. And it was like giving them their passport, almost literally, uh, to being part of Kalal Yisrael, to being part of all of Israel, the Jewish community. By the way, the rate of millennial Jews identify, who are the product of intermarried parents, identifying as Jews went up to 60%. And yes, if you look at the intermarriage rates based on who intermarried in the 70s and the 80s, it suggests that the future is very, very bleak. If you actually look at the children and you look at what happened to this generation that was given an opportunity, um, it's a different story. My take, uh, just to summarize it, is that we're at a point in time, um, I call it beyond welcoming. We've welcomed the intermarried families into the community. Many, many more of them, the majority of the children of intermarried parents identify as Jews. Now the challenge is how to educate them and to make them and to give them meaningful roles in the, in the community. I want to ask you a little bit about implications of the Pew study and all the subsequent studies on policy for existing organizations, for new organizations, for funders, because I'm thinking in particular about at least a story that's told, and I and you can confirm whether it's true or not, but of the 1990 Jewish population survey. And I think that there was some findings in that survey. I'm not sure exactly what they were, but they were findings that were interpreted as people were more likely to affiliate Jewishly or or have have stronger Jewish connections if they went through a certain set of experiences, which I think were going to Israel a couple of times, going to a Jewish summer camp, going to a day school. And out of that, out of that finding, a, a variety of initiatives came trying to attach more Jews to those experiences. So there was, uh, so there was a, the Foundation for Jewish Camp. I think Birthright Israel came out of that that finding to some extent. And, and I guess I'm wondering, are there findings, as you see them, are there findings in these more recent studies that could, that, that would open up the, the possibility that there are other initiatives that, uh, that Jewish organizations might pursue that would help 
move Jews in the direction that they are hoping that Jews will move in. You know, does the does the does does this study give us some other avenues or confirm those avenues and say we should even be doubling down on them? And or when we're talking about new organizations forming or funders that are considering funding new organizations, you know, are there findings in these studies that suggest, hey, if an organization is coming to you saying we've really got a great idea about how to do X, you know, these studies suggest that, yeah, X is actually a really important thing to do. And and that might be worth a, a second look. I don't think the 1990s study created um, these programs or even created the, the foundation for a whole set of initiatives. What it did is it created a kind of panic or at least it became the focal point for um, the angst that many in the Jewish community felt about um, where, where the community was going. Um, the 52% intermarriage rate became a rallying cry and um, federations and all sorts of other organizations created task forces and committees and continuity commissions and so on. Um, crises sell, problems make headlines, and we live from one crisis and headline to another. Um, but I think the Pew study was in some ways more important because it, it, it gave this picture, they called it a portrait, of a large community with very, very different types of people being, being involved in them. I'll say one other thing, and that is in my own work, uh, that of my team, and the interesting thing is in most of the communities we've studied, you can divide the community into five groups. And we call the first one the, the immersed group. These are people who are synagogue goers regularly. They're also donors and they celebrate holidays. They're also involved in the community and they read Jewish periodicals and they visit Israel. They do everything. What's interesting is that there may be 15% of, uh, of, of, of many of the communities that we've studied. What's also interesting is that at least three of the other groups also are connected people or connected in some way. There's one group that's sort of the communitarians that get involved in communal organizations. They'd rather go to the local um, JCRC, Jewish Community Relations Council, than go to synagogue, but they're connected. They're connected. They go back and forth to Israel. There's another group who just do the holidays and they do the holidays with their, their families. Only a very small number of people are minimally connected, maybe 15% of communities, but that's a very different picture than um, I think most people, um, if you ask the, the Jewish person on the street uh, without having them reflect much about it, um, they would be surprised that there's that level um, of engagement. Also, just to go back to the, the issue um, I discussed earlier about Hillel and the situation on campuses, one of the things that's, that's clear is that while there are fewer Jewish students at the schools that were have large Hillels and are the traditional focal schools, focal point schools for um, Jewish students, 
it's no longer that Jews are just at 100 universities or even 200 universities. And so that requires that the community funders, philanthropists think differently about how they invest. But we have been crisis focused, whether it is the BDS movement on campus, whether it is the rate of intermarriage, the 52% intermarriage rate in the 1990s galvanized communities to, uh, to act. One of my favorite um, social science uh, thinkers and uh, fellow social psychologists uh, is Daniel Kahneman. And you know, he talks about two systems of, of thought. One, your sort of immediate reaction, and two, um, thinking systematically about the information. And we haven't thought slow enough in the Jewish community, whether it's our leaders, whether it's the, the community, even many of the, the, the thought leaders haven't promoted slow thinking where we systematically look um, at the information. And I think if we do that, we will find better ways to support the community. I'm not, by the way, I don't think a program is the solution to every problem. And I don't think creating an institution is the solution to every problem. One of the things that we have to do is to promote deeper social connection among people and get people out of institutions to be in interaction with one another. We know how to do that from centuries of creating and sustaining Jewish communities. And we need to do more of that. And we need to do at least some of it using the work that I do, my colleagues do, to systematically try to understand um, the community, the issues that are on people's minds and affect their lives. Thank you so much, Len Sachs, for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. And thanks, of course, to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll tune in in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit us up on Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always reach us via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we'd like to make is that we are incredibly grateful for any amount of financial donation you're able to make to us. And you can do that at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate through either a monthly recurring gift or a one-time donation. So thanks so much for listening. And with that... This has been Judaism Unbound.